welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm here more or less with Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsons. Hey. Hi, Susan. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> Skyperific. We're in Berlin. Well, I'm in Berlin, and Florian is in... I'm in Holland. Uh, I met my parents the first time seeing them since March, I think. Mm -hmm. They're well. This is the good news. That is good. That is wonderful. You know, sometimes, however, the Dead Lady Show also has a home away from home. I know. So we have a regular show in Belgium. I mean, it was regular in the before times. They've done three or four different ones, and they still have some scheduled for December, talking about wonderful sociologist Fatima Marnisi, for instance, or about a Dutch explorer and photographer that I might talk about at some point in the English version of the podcast called Alexine Dinner. Mm -hmm. She seems really cool. And they also have live music, mm. singing songs by Marlene Dietrich and Claire Waldorf. So that's a big bonus for living in Belgium. That is lovely. It is. And we had Claire Waldorf as well in live shows and hopefully someday on podcasts too. Now, before we get to today's event, I want to bring our Berlin friends up to date about what we're doing with our live show in Berlin. Oh, so what we're doing is we're, we're having a little break during the winter months. And then as soon as the weather will, you know, allow us to sit outside semi-comfortably and not get wet or snowed on, like late April. Um, we're planning uh, to do sort of almost monthly shows, actually, throughout the warmer months of the year. Very much stay tuned for that and uh, sign up for our newsletter on the website if you want to know more about when we start again. Yes, excellent. Okay, so back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> info. Um, yeah, so the show that we're featuring today comes from? It was uh, recorded by our friends at the Dead Lady Show in New York, also in the before times. It's hosted there by our friend Molly O'Laughlin Kemper at the KGB Bar Red Room, um, which is a lovely place to be. I would love to see it in person someday. I can, many of you, however, can right now because the KGB Bar has recently reopened in a socially distant way. It's a little bit limited, but if you're in New York, put on a mask Go by, drop in, show them some love. Speaking of masks, I love a spooky story in October. So even though right now, <laughs> the real world's frankly scary enough. But I selected to talk about the acclaimed author of some of the most chilling tales in contemporary American literature, Shirley Jackson. Now, I did kind of get the feeling that the scariest part of her story might not be the supernatural, but 1950s patriarchy. But, you know, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Florian, tell us about our presenter, please. I'm very happy to do so. Her name is Krista Alberg. She's a copywriter editor in New York City. And this is what she told us about herself. She loves grammar and ghosts in equal measure when not reading young adult novels for fun and profit. Wow, that's really nice, by the way. Um, she's probably attempting to sew from vintage patterns or watching competition reality TV from 10 years ago. <laughs> okay. Hit it, Krista. Imagine that you live in a small town in New England, and one day in June, you gather with your fellow townspeople to draw slips of paper out of a box. If you draw a paper with a black mark on it, you've won the lottery. 
and your neighbors, family, and friends will throw rocks at you and stone you to death. <laughs> this is the plot of the short story, The Lottery. Sorry, I just spoiled it for all two of you who didn't have to read it in high school. Um, most people know the story. Its twist ending tends to stick in the mind. Um, and it's one of the most anthologized short stories of all time. Now imagine that you live in a small town in New England, and one day in late June, you go downtown to pick up a copy of The New Yorker, which has one of your stories in it. This is what happened to Shirley Jackson, and as she told it, this was the last time she was ever able to go out about her life in anonymity before the publication of the lottery upended things and made her a household name. These days, if you know Shirley Jackson's name at all, it's probably for the lottery or for her novel, The Haunting of Hill House, though I have to say my favorite story is called The Tooth. I wrote a very earnest essay about it in college. <laughs> um, uh, you may have seen this well-known photograph of Shirley, and you might think of her as a bit of a madwoman in the attic, obsessed with all things creepy and macabre. But in reality, Shirley Jackson is a whole bunch of contradictions wrapped up in a pretty awesome lady. Uh, she was born in California in 1916, though when she got married, she listed her birth year as 1919, to, as so as to appear younger than her husband. Uh, she loved her home state, even though she spent most of her life on the East Coast. Uh, she also didn't really like having her picture taken, but she did draw a lot of cartoons of herself, um, in which her hair is always... <laughs> flying out as though she's being electrocuted. Uh, she was born into a wealthy family, but she did often feel like an outsider. She wasn't as girly as her mother wanted her to be, and she preferred reading books about witchcraft to learning traditional feminine skills. Uh, her mom was a real piece of work. There's really no other term for her. She was critical of Shirley throughout her life, and even when Shirley moved away, she would constantly send her letters criticizing her looks, her weight, her housekeeping skills, and her writing. Uh, fun fact, three of Shirley's novels include a main character who kills her own mother. <laughs> uh, uh, according to her diaries and letters, Shirley always had a crush on some boy, but the most impactful relationships of your, her young life were really her friendships with women. Uh, she had a best friend named Dorothy throughout high school, who features in some of her early stories. And in college, she became friends with a French exchange student named Janu who she kept in touch with for many years and who was godmother to one of her daughters. Um, there's a picture of them, um, which I love because they look so cute and happy. Um, close female friendships often invite speculation, and at the time, Shirley wrote about people talking about them and suspecting they were lesbians. There have also been numerous critical readings of Shirley's work, investigating its lesbian themes, especially her second novel, Hangsman, about a girl who's assaulted at a party, then goes to college and becomes friends with a girl who may or may not be real. Shirley did push back against this interpretation, saying, I happen to know what Hangsman is about. I wrote it. <laughs> she also objected to being cited in a book of lesbian critical theory, and at one point referred to lesbians as unholy, which... Yikes. Um, <laughs> but as Ruth Franklin says in her recent biography of Shirley, which I drew from a lot for this presentation, the reaction was likely more about her fiction being interpreted in a way she didn't intend, a loss of control over what she wrote. Um, and her potentially lesbian characters fall under her preoccupation with writing characters who are outsiders or outcasts. She also wrote empathetically about a lot of black and Jewish characters. And later, in The Haunting of Hill House, she included a character who, at least in one early draft, is overtly identified as a lesbian. Um, in college, Shirley met her husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman. He's 
he's a cutie. Um, <laughs> he was very smart and charismatic and surely found an intellectual equal in him. They were really into each other, but he was also kind of terrible to her. Uh, they immediately had strong feelings for each other. Stanley told people that he knew he was going to marry her as soon as he read a story in the college literary magazine because he thought her writing was so great, which, you know, you can choose to believe that or not. But uh, some of their letters to each other during college were super intense. Uh, Shirley once wrote a poem to him, which included the line, your intellect is a half-crazed centaur. <laughs> uh, they also had a bit of a forbidden love thing going on since Stanley was Jewish and Shirley wasn't, and their parents opposed the relationship. Neither of their parents came to the wedding, and Shirley's parents didn't even know they were married until several years later. But even though he loved Shirley, Stanley was also pretty firmly opposed to monogamy. Uh, he was open about this with Shirley from the beginning and would even write her letters about his exploits with other women. She was not into this. Um, she spent a lot of time throughout their dating life and marriage being jealous of the time he spent with other women. He tended to pretty much ignore any complaints she had about it. Uh, once in college, she wrote him a breakup letter, and he responded by calling her letter-writing style marvelous. Uh, <laughs> in Shirley's nonfiction writing, he's portrayed as kind of a grumpy fixture in an armchair who would rather read the newspaper or talk about his coin collection with unsuspecting strangers than do anything to help with childcare or housework. It's played for laughs in these essays, and definitely it was the norm in the 50s for husbands not to help out with anything. Um, but Shirley was clearly annoyed by it based on some of her cartoons. Um, in this one, she's carrying a bunch of groceries, and he's sitting in a chair reading a newspaper and saying, dear, you know the doctor said you weren't to carry anything heavy. And, uh, and in the next one, uh, she's holding a baby and looking very perplexed, and he's lying in bed saying, I thought I'd rest a while, dear. I did three paragraphs at once, and it tired me out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they were both writers, though Stanley wrote literary criticism, not fiction, and they were competitive about it. Shirley writes somewhat jokingly about them having a contest to see who could get a book published first, which Shirley won. Uh, um, she was much more successful than him, in fact, and for most of their marriage, she was the primary wage earner. But he still handled all the family's money, which Shirley resented. He also acted as something of a combination editor and critic to her and thought of himself as having discovered her. At one point, he pompously told a friend that she had no idea what the things she wrote meant. Clearly, he thought it was up to him to explain it to her. <laughs> of course, a very important relationship in her life, in some ways more important even than with her husband and children, was with writing. Uh, Shirley had been writing all of her life, and she had been published in high school and college literary journals, but her first pu professional publication was in 1941, uh, when she was 25, just under a year before her first child was born. The story is called My Life with R.H. Macy, and it's a very relatable story about the mundane horrors of working in retail. Uh, the majority of Shirley's fiction can be characterized as gothic. Stories about creepy old houses, uncanny, possibly supernatural characters who upset the balance of the protagonist's lives, and the darkness present inside the human mind. She sold a handful of stories a year to literary magazines throughout the 40s, and her first novel came out in 1948, though it was a bit of a disappointment both critically and financially. But then came the lottery, which was an immediate sensation. The New Yorker got more letters about it than they had ever gotten for a story before. 
In these letters, the story got such varied responses as, do such tribunals exist? And if so, where? Um, I expect a personal apology from the author. <laughs> and it certainly is modern. <laughs> Uh, in Biography of a Story, Shirley's essay about the process of writing the lottery, she says over and over again that it's just a story. She didn't have any particular interpretation in mind when she was writing it. Is this true? We don't really know. She certainly wasn't opposed to exaggerating the truth in nonfiction to make it a better story. Biography of a Story paints a very romantic picture of the writing of the lottery, but it certainly isn't true in the strictest sense. She says that the story was published weeks after she wrote it and with only one revision, which you know from her correspondence with The New Yorker wasn't the case. But it is a great story about a story and certainly played into the public's fascination with the lottery and its creator. A few years after, after it was published, Shirley recorded herself reading the lottery allegedly with a glass of bourbon in hand for her nerves. Um, and it's one of the only recordings of her voice that exists. So let's listen to that now. Possibly. Yeah, in addition to not uh, liking her picture taken and being reluctant to record this, she also was really opposed to any sort of publicity. So they had to do the recording locally and let her bring her alcohol in with her. Um, I think also at least one of her kids was there like for moral support. <laughs> The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. After its success, Shirley did admit some fear that she would be thereafter known only for the lottery um, and nothing else. But during her lifetime, at least, she was as much if not more well-known for her humorous essays about her family and home life. Um, and those stories also tended to pay better. Uh, she started writing short pieces for women's magazines in the late 40s, and in 1953, her book Life Among the Savages came out. The savages in question are her very adorable children. Um, they're on the back of the book jacket there. They apparently didn't always enjoy being written about. However, her daughter Sarah later complained, every month our family was exposed again in Ladies' Home Journal. Uh, these essays have the same quality of sardonic understatement as her fiction, but without too much horror. And they're also very funny, so if you don't like scary stuff but do enjoy hijinks with children, I highly recommend them. In The Feminine Mystique, which came out about 10 years after the publication of Life Among the Savages, Betty Friedan criticized Shirley for being a woman writer who wrote about herself as though she was just a housewife. Shirley didn't identify as a feminist, but she was clearly aware of the dual role that women were expected to play at the time, the push-pull between having a family and having a career. Uh, there's an oft-quoted story about her going to the hospital to have her third child, and when they ask her what her job is, she says, writer, and they say, I'll just put down housewife. <laughs> and it's also worth noting that in all of her writing, whether fiction or essay, women are the focus. Their thoughts, their feelings, their struggles, and their triumphs. 
Others were also disappointed that she turned from literary horror to housewife stories, and some were confused as to how the same person could write both. I don't really see them as being that different, personally. Um, there's a lot of uncanny and weird stuff in her essays, and some anecdotes feel like they only need like a little push to turn super gothic. Uh, <laughs> there's one about her son Lawrence uh, going off to kindergarten, and every day he comes home and uh, complains about a boy in his class named Charles, who's a troublemaker. And at the end of the story, the family finds out that actually there is no Charles, and Lawrence is the one who's been causing trouble all along. Uh, the doppelganger practically writes itself. Um, Shirley did continue to publish literary novels, as well as another book of essays, and people continue to wonder how one person could write in both genres but maybe it's not that complicated. Asked how she could write such different styles, Lawrence later said, the answer is abundantly simple. That's what fiction is. She was a writer, and a good one can use a variety of styles. To be honest, people were always kind of confused by Shirley's writing. There are a lot of reviews of her novels that basically boil down to, what does this even mean? I don't understand it. It's bad. Um, it seems like they wanted her to be easily definable, um, wanted to be able to put her in a box one way or another. Uh, some critics were really harsh about life among the savages and wished she'd go back to horror, while her editor at Good Housekeeping rejected any stories that he found to be too depressing. Perhaps not surprisingly, most reviewers who didn't like her work were men, and most of the few women reviewers of the time found a lot to like in it. Critics also didn't always take her seriously, writing her off as a housewife, or a bad housewife, or a witch. But she also really cultivated these different personas depending on who she was talking to. Uh, she would play up her knowledge of witchcraft, which was extensive, um, to alarm or entice interviewers, like when she joked about breaking her husband's publisher, Alfred A. Knopf's leg uh, by magic during a contract dispute. Um, but there were also interviews where she acted like stories were just something she kind of dashed off between putting dinner on the table for the kids. Sometimes she seemed to really grade against this switching of identities, and other times she was amused by it. There are also a lot of people then and now who want to draw connections between Shirley's real life and her fiction, who want to figure out what the real story is. It's clear that many of her stories do have a root in things she saw or experienced. She talked openly about getting inspiration from real life things, but she said in a lecture that an accurate account of an incident is not a story. She could start with something that actually happened, but would generally change almost every detail before it became a story to her. I kind of want to steer away from making a bunch of comparisons between her life and work, because in my opinion, it's usually women writers who people are trying to play this game of where did the idea come from with, um, as though they suspect that women aren't inventive enough to come up with things on their own. Um, I don't really think that there's any doubt that Shirley was. With her final two novels, The Haunting of Hill House, about a research team investigating a haunted house, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, about two sisters who live alone and may have murdered the rest of their family, um, Shirley saw a lot more critical and commercial success. One review said, Shirley Jackson looks at the world as practically nobody ever does and describes it in a way almost anybody would like to emulate. More people finally seemed to get what she was going for though some still saw only the surface-level qualities of each novel, a ghost story and a whodunit, as opposed to their exploration of human emotions. Hill House was also the only book of hers that her husband never read, because he found it too frightening, 
which I think is the only time I've ever related to him. <laughs> but her last two books also coincided with a decline in Shirley's mental and physical health. She suffered from depression to various degrees throughout her life. Her childhood diary describes dramatic mood swings. She had names for her moods as if they were characters. And when she went away to college, she had long episodes of sadness and lethargy, which she described as a deadening shock. She stopped going to classes or doing homework and dropped out at the end of her sophomore year, taking a year off before going back. In a segment I like to call the 50s, yikes. <laughs> Uh, when Shirley went to the doctor about chronic headaches she was having in 1950, the doctor diagnosed her with nervous tension and then asked if she wanted to lose weight because that would help her headaches. Um, he prescribed Dexamil, which is a mix of amphetamines and barbiturates. And this is an ad for Dexamil. Um, the text on that says, to help the depressed and anxiety-ridden housewife who is surrounded by a monotonous routine of daily problems, disappointments, and responsibilities. Um, later, she also started taking Valium and Mother's Little Helper, Milltown, and later the antipsychotic Thorazine, which may have actually increased her anxiety. Um, here's another horrifying ad I found, even though I don't think Shirley ever took Mornadine. But uh, the text reads, now she can cook breakfast again when you prescribe new Mornadine, which I think accurately describes the daily horror that Shirley was living with as a woman in the 1950s. In 1953, her headaches increased and she started having nightmares, sleepwalking, experiencing memory loss, and having crying jags, which she connected with the writing of her novel, The Bird's Nest, about a woman with four distinct personalities. This continued into 1954, when she had trouble sleeping without sleeping pills. Um, in the late 50s, another doctor again told her to lose weight, since she had high blood pressure. And even though Shirley, at least at one point, had rejected the idea that she should be thin as claptrap, she started dieting. Her doctor told her to only eat 1,000 calories a day. Unsurprisingly, this extreme dieting did not help her health. In the early 60s, Shirley became agoraphobic and rarely left her house, experiencing feelings of fear of the outside world and finding the thought of her usual, usual tasks paralyzing. She also developed colitis in 1961 and broke her ankle the next year, which added more complications to going outside. In 1963, she started seeing a therapist who helped her get back into her old routine but didn't do as much to address the underlying issues. As her daughter-in-law put it, you give her a bunch of pills, and if she can go to the market, that means she's getting better. But he did seem to have helped her in some ways. And in 1964, she went on a lecture tour of colleges and started writing again. She was excited about the new novel she was working on, which, unfortunately, she would never finish. In August 1965, when she was 48 years old, she took an afternoon nap and never woke up. She died of a coronary occlusion. The attempt to try to categorize Shirley's life and her writing continued after her death. In 1966, only about a year after she died, her husband wrote an introduction to a posthumously published collection of short stories in which he tried to steer the conversation away from interpreting her work as relating to any darkness within her own self. Uh, interestingly, he was already married again by the time this collection came out to one of his former students, and obviously his introduction does not go into any complications she had either with her writing or with her family. 
1989, a biography of Shirley Jackson called Private Demons came out. I wasn't able to find a copy of it, but the summary given online is, a portrait of Shirley Jackson reveals her less public life, including her horrifying descent into madness. And from what I can tell via reviews, it spends a significant portion gathering evidence that Shirley was molested as a young person. Whether or not this is true, I don't know. But to me, this kind of shows an icky tendency to insinuate that elements of Shirley's fiction must spring from events in her own life. Ruth Franklin's biography, which I mentioned earlier, A Rather Haunted Life, came out in 2016, and it does show a much more balanced picture, perhaps because she had unprecedented access to Shirley's notes and letters. I did not, and so to me, sometimes this biography seems like it's assuming Shirley's feelings on various subjects, which I'm wary of. I don't want to make her sound like she was an enigma, like, oh, we can never know what she was thinking. She's shrouded in layers of deception. Because she was a person, but she was a very smart and talented woman who was good at saying what she meant to say, whether that happened to be the whole truth or not. Um, it's hard to separate writers from their work, and it seems especially hard for women who must always be categorized instead of seen as universal the way male writers can be. But I hope I've been able to do that a bit for Shirley to show the person behind the writer. There has been an increased interest in Shirley Jackson lately, Every year on June 27th, there are Lottery Day celebrations of her work, um, but she's certainly being recognized for more than just the lottery. In 2007, the annual Shirley Jackson Awards were created to honor outstanding achievement in the literature of horror, the dark fantastic, and psychological suspense. Netflix released a TV show of The Haunting of Hill House last year, which I'm assured is very good. And they also just released a movie of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. The world feels dark right now, and maybe that's why we're turning to the Gothic for comfort, looking for ghosts we can banish and safe houses we can lock ourselves up in. Or maybe they're just good stories. I kind of think it's always both. When she was working on We've Always Lived in the Castle, Shirley said, My most basic beliefs in writing are that the identity is all-important and the word is all-powerful. Shirley wrote some all-powerful words, and we're still listening. Mr. Albert on Shirley Jackson at the Dead Lady Show New York, recorded last year at the KGB Bar Red Room. As Krista mentioned, there are a number of recent filmed adaptations of Shirley Jackson's stories, and there's also a fairly new one that's not quite a biopic. It's called Shirley, and it's directed by Josephine Decker, a very cool director. And it stars Elizabeth Moss, who is pretty shattering in the title role. It's based actually on a novel about Shirley Jackson from a writer called Susan Scarf Merrill, which is a fantastic imagining of Shirley's life with some Jackson-esque elements thrown in. There has been some critique of the film, as there was of the book. Jackson's children, which as we've heard were a really big part of her life and domestic responsibilities, they don't appear in the film. They are actually in the book. Um, and the timeline has been kind of manipulated to allow for some very dramatic elements. But still, it's a dreamy, intoxicating film, great for October, great for any month, <laughs> and I recommend it. Uh, Florian, what are your favorite Shirley Jackson stories? And so, as Krista said, if you were a high school student in the U.S., which I was, you read the lottery, <laughs> for sure. Um, when did you first read Shirley Jackson or encounter her? 
Uh, I know. So we didn't read the lottery in high school. Uh, we read Dutch stuff. And I first became aware of Shirley Jackson in high school, though, because at the time there was a remake of the early 60s version of The Haunting. Uh, the remake starred Lily Taylor, who was sort of this big-eyed, perennial sort of ingenue-looking character actress yeah. uh, who I loved. And that movie kind of sucked. So I went back to the original and then I fell into the the wonderful sea of Shirley Jackson books out there, uh, including Hangs a Man and The Sundial, which are some weirder books, if you can even say that of Shirley Jackson stories, but they're a bit weirder, but I love them very much. Um, not quite as much as I love We've Always Lived in the Castle, which is my absolute favorite of hers which is just a, a perfect novella, perfectly terrifying, perfectly funny. It also boasts the very best first paragraph of any book I have ever read. And I'd love to read it to you. <laughs> I mean, read it. Have you got it? Read it. I do got it. It was published in 1962, I guess, for the first time. And this is the first paragraph. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I'm 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I've often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length. But I have to, I've had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita Faloides, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. Yeah, the placement of that dead family and the poison... Mushroom thing. Mushroom. Mm -hmm. That's foreshadowing right there. Yeah. There's a film of that that came out, I think, last year. It looks very dramatic. I don't know if it was uh, made for Netflix, but it's on, I think maybe in the U.S. it's on Netflix, um, like The Haunting of Hill House, which is also, I think Kristen mentioned, that is probably going to be too scary for me. Have you seen it? <laughs> I've, I've watched a couple of episodes. I mean, it's interesting and, and sort of lavish, mm. But it's a different, ex I mean, they've sort of extended everybody's stories. The crooked neck lady, I guess, is the, the scary yeah. <laughs> the scary element. But the, the second season just launched, I guess, last week. Yeah, and that is Haunting of Bly Manor or something. But that has nothing to do with Shirley Jackson, correct? Uh, no, no, no. It's, I, I guess, it's the, it's the Shirley Jackson extended universe. Yes. Okay. <laughs> could be worse. Could be worse. Well, I guess we can put some, some links to trailers and um, ways that people can watch and read some of uh, Shirley's stuff. Oh, yes, 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 for sure. We'll, we'll have links to all things Shirley, including her cartoons, her reading of the lottery in full, uh, and some of those vintage pharmaceutical ads at our website, deadladyshow.com. And we'll also be featuring Shirley on our social media channels, which you can find via at deadladyshow. If you know someone who prefers to read their podcasts, well, we have transcripts. They're all thanks to our supporters, including the newest edition, Robin Miller. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> our talk this episode comes from the New York Dead Lady Show, which is hosted and curated, as I said earlier, by the lovely Molly O'Laughlin Kemper, with support from Nicholas Kemper and Christopher Neal, as well as Lori Schwartz, the general manager of the KGB Bar Red Room. And that kicky music you're hearing behind us is our theme song, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. 
The Dead Liddy Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thank you, Florian. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to everybody out there listening. See you next time. Thank you.